0: Hello and welcome to our Living Word Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday morning experience. Can we just give it up one last time before we get into the Word? Thank you, worship team. If you can give me a drink. My beautiful wife who gives me my tea and my water. Thank you. Thank you. Love you. Waters deformed. Okay. Wow, it's a quiet Sunday morning. This is going to be a doozy. I'm excited for this one. How are you guys doing this Sunday morning? All right, a little better. Um, I'm gonna be real with you guys. I am uh, very excited to speak. Honestly, what it'd be it'd be more interesting if I came up and said, "I'm going to be real with you guys. I am not excited to speak. I was forced to do this." Uh, But I'm actually super excited. Uh, Pastor Nick had asked me to, kids, it's time to go downstairs to kids' church. (laughs) Yo, you guys think it's easy, but look at that. Even pastor forgot. Okay. I wouldn't have forgotten. Anyways, a few weeks ago, pastor said, hey, Mariana, would you like to speak naturally? Uh, I said yes. I felt like I had a very specific word for the church and I was very excited to share it, Um, but unfortunately for me, pastor spoke fire over the next few weeks after asking me and uh, I had an idea of what what I wanted to speak on, but pastor started talking about leadership and how to be a better leader and how to lead people uh, and it wrecked me and it made me self-analyze. And so uh, the Lord gave me something new for this morning and I'm very excited. It's a lot of self-reflection. At the end of this, if you haven't received anything I maybe I'm just preaching to myself and I'm fine with that I have the microphone you're already sitting it'd be too awkward for you to leave at this point so you have to sit for 45 minutes whether you like it or not this is just one of those journeys I love what we get to do when we have a microphone now if you have your Bibles if you'd open up to first Samuel chapter 17 we are going uh, on a roller coaster today we're gonna hit 20 verses straight because I feel like this is uh, doable. We're a responsible, mature church. 20 verses is no big deal. So 1 Samuel 17 verses 31 to 51 uh, says this. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, "'Let no man's heart fail because of him. "'Your servant will go and fight this Philistine.' And Saul said to David, "'You are not able to go against this Philistine "'to fight with him, for you are but a youth, "'and he has been a man of war from his youth.' But David said to Saul, "'Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. "'And when there came a lion or a bear "'and took a lamb from the flock, "'I went after him and struck him "'and delivered him out of his mouth. "'And if he rose against me, "'I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear would deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then he said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I had not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took off his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth. All that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear for the Lord, the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. First off that, wow. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. I'm going to pray before we start, before we begin. God, we thank you so much, Lord, um, for who you are and what you're doing, God. We thank you that you are uh, better than we think you are, God. You are more powerful than we think you are, God. I pray, Lord, that this morning uh, you just show us that it's not about what we're able to do. It's not about our ability, God, but it's the fact that you walk with us and you go before us, God. Lord, we trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen, amen. Uh, Show of hands, who here has grown up listening to Star 99.1 on the radio? Show of, oh, we have a lot of Christians in the house. My favorite thing about Star 99.1 is their consistency. They've been playing the same four albums for the last 20 years. Um, So don't say Christians aren't consistent because man, they've been, it's been, toby mack for the it's been man do you understand the day toby mack drops a new album they're gonna go wild at 99.1 like new music to listen to and 99.1 used to have a game called bible or not and i loved it because some people are so dumb and they would say very biblical sounding phrases and be like bible or not and someone would go uh Bible, and they'd be like, wrong, ha, 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 and they would laugh at them, and I would laugh at them. And I remember one of the ones that got me when I was a kid, and I'll be honest, was this. I forget the guy's name, but he goes, uh, Cindy, it is time for Bible or not. And that was the song. And he goes, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. Bible or not? And the girl goes, um, not Bible. And I was like, haha, Cindy, you're so dumb. That's obviously in Proverbs. And uh, the host goes, correct. That is not a Bible passage. And I sat there and was like, what? Because people use that in church lingo all the time. They go, comparison is a thief of joy. And honestly, Proverbs is so long that I just assumed it was in there somewhere. Can not be real with you? I thought it was between 119 and like the 80s because like I've never made it past that part of someone. It just goes on for so long. And, and I was shocked because this isn't a Bible verse, but there's a lot of biblical understanding in this verse. Comparison is the thief of joy because what comparison does is it makes you look at what's happening in the life of other people and it keeps you from appreciating what God is doing in your life. What comparison does is it makes you see how God is working in the life of your neighbor as opposed to your own life. And and Jesus, when he comes, he talks to his disciples and he lets them know that he came so that they may experience joy and its fullness. But the hard thing is we live in a day and an age where it's so easy to compare with what's happening around you. And more often than not, I find myself as a leader disappointed in myself, not because I've failed, but just because I've seen where other people have succeeded. You see, what I've been learning is that comparison stems from a lack of confidence. Comparison thrives where confidence lacks. So in the areas of your life where you're very confident in your ability and your experience, you won't compare. But in the, experience, in the moment in your life where you lack that experience or you lack that ability, that is where the comparison happens. For example, there are a few areas in my life that I am very confident in. First is my height. It is a beautiful thing to be over six feet in this world. People need you for everything. Can you get the thing on the top shelf? Can you help me reach for this? Hey, can you dunk on this person? I can, I choose not to out of politeness, but don't cross me. All I'm saying is it is beautiful to be tall. I had someone once look at me and they said, man, you're going to figure out one day that you are much taller than most people and the day you do, it will be dangerous. And let me tell you, that day has come because I love being in a group of people knowing that I'm very confident in my stature. I look over everyone. And in fact, some people, if you're too close to me, I don't see you at all. (laughs) You're four foot five and you're standing right here. I'm like, hello? Wait, oh, oh, and I'm also blind, so I don't see anything passed down here. So this is, this is a danger zone. I've run over children in this area. I ran over my wife in this area. Like, it is bad, it is so bad. I'm also fairly confident uh, in, in what I like to wear. Uh, When I was younger, I got made fun of for my jeans being tight. I got made fun of for wearing boots. I got made fun of because my shirts were long. I got made fun of because of my hair. And and it's funny because the people that made fun of me a few years later started wearing the same exact thing. Very confident in what I wear. This isn't to say that I think I'm better than anyone. What I'm saying is you might think what I'm looking like is bad. You might hate this, but I don't hate this. And I'm very confident in this. Whether you like it or not doesn't affect how I feel. I'm very confident in what I wear. Not to say I'm the best dresser. There are some people like Joel kills it, right? And he's confident how he dresses. So, so I'm confident in what I'm wearing. Your opinion doesn't affect me. It doesn't matter. I'm not comparing. I'm good, and I'm happy. But there are so many areas where I'm not confident in. So many areas where, where when, I, when I let myself think for too long, I, I start to compare and that comparison is made worse by, worse by this age of social media where all you have to do is open up Instagram or, or Twitter or Facebook and now you feel like even less of a person. And as a leader, some of the things that I struggle when it comes to confidence is things like putting on big services. Putting on events is terrifying when you're a leader because you put all your hours in, all your energy in, but you don't know if people are going to show up or not. You don't know if people are going to appreciate it or not. You don't know if you're going to put in all this time and energy and it's going to rain and no one's going to show up. As a leader, I lack confidence sometimes when it comes to sermons. I'll speak a sermon. I feel like I did what God asked me to do and and I feel like it was good and I feel like I did what I had to do. And then you open up Instagram and you watch a preaching clip with thousands of views and you're like, I mean, okay and now before i know it i'm comparing myself to someone who's been doing this for 20 years longer than i have who's been building for longer than i have who has more experience than i have and i found myself in a place sometimes where 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 i compare myself to to everyone but but i believe that god doesn't want us to live a life full of comparison god doesn't want us to live a life where we're looking for joy in the life of other people God wants us to live a life where we find joy in what he's asked us to do, and we find joy in the fact that he is with us. And if he is with us, I don't need to look and see what's happening over here or what's happening over there. Now, much easier said than done. It's a lot easier to say that comparison is is something that we can shrug off, but I think all of us struggle with it in some way, shape, or form. I think the person that, uh, that nailed it in the Bible is David. I think David uh, is one of the most successful people when it comes to confidence because David knew that his confidence was not in himself, but that his confidence was in the Lord. And David walked in a confidence that was just so bold for someone in his age. You see, in uh, Samuel chapter 17, David was working the field. David was tending to the flock. David was tending to the sheep. Meanwhile, his older brothers are out at war. His father looks at David and says, David, would you take some food to your older brothers? And would you take some food to the commander of the army? David says, of course. So he gets someone to take care of his sheep. David makes his way over to the battlefield. And when he gets there, he realizes that they have been at war for quite some time and nothing is happening. Turns out there's a guy named Goliath who's ginormous, who's been taunting the Israelites. And when David catches wind of this, he's curious as to who this guy is. So he begins asking and inquiring about what's going on. And the people start telling him that there's this guy named Goliath. He's taunting Israel. He's fighting. He's making fun of him. He's defying God. David goes, this is not okay. And as the conversation continues, he starts to hear that there's a reward for whoever can take out Goliath. The reward is a lot of money. The reward is the king's daughter. And the reward is that his father's house will be for free. And David goes, I like this. I'm about this life. And so he starts asking again and again and again until his brother overhears that David is inquiring. He goes, David, what are you doing here? You came to look at the war. This is not a joke. This is serious. David goes, shut up. And he keeps on going and talking to more people until eventually Saul hears that someone is inquiring about defeating Goliath. Now, I'm not sure if Saul was prepared for this little kid to walk into his tent, but sure enough, this kid that, theologians will argue and say that he would have been between the ages of 12 and 16 walks in and Saul's like, Uh, but you're a kid. And David goes, no, I know that I'm a kid, but I fought lions and I fought bears and I protected my sheep. And he goes on to say that he believes that the God who delivered him from the lions and the bears will deliver him from the Philistine. Saul goes, well, Like, what are you gonna do in that situation? This kid walked in boldly. He's declaring that the Lord is with him. Saul goes, fine. And Saul grabs his best armor. He straps David into this armor. David is a 16 year old walking in an armor that's meant for an older man. It's awkward. It's probably not fitting the best way it's heavy the bible says that david says he couldn't go on because he had not tested it he says this isn't going to work for me this isn't comfortable for me it's too cumbersome so he goes you know what i'm just going to go with what i know and he picks up a sling and a few rocks and this is the moment where the logical person in me goes but like, that's armor, dude. Like that is metal and Goliath has metal. And you said no to the metal for a little toy, like a little, a little sling and a few rot. What is the logic behind this? But you see, I'm looking at this from the lens of someone who's putting confidence in man's ability. David saw this as a guy who was completely confident in the fact that he wasn't kill Goliath, but that God was going to. And the Bible says that David goes up to Goliath They go back and forth. David pulls out his sling. He spins it a few times. He lets go, hits Goliath right on the forehead. Goliath is dead. And then David climbs over him, picks up Goliath's sword and cuts his head off. And then he proceeds to walk with his head for a little bit, which that point in and of itself does not further my narrative at all. But I do take issue with the fact that none of our Sunday school teachers ever told us that. And I only figured that out when I was 16. (laughs) David killed Goliath, the end. And I was like, awesome. And I pick up my Bible and I'm like, He cut off his head and walked around with it, and no one said anything about it? This kid's like 16. That's the creepiest thing in the world. Man, David didn't kill Goliath because he was strong. He didn't kill Goliath because he was a warrior. He killed Goliath because he knew that God went with him, and David's confidence was found in the Lord, not in his own strength. Now, let me hit you with some logistical points here. First off, Saul's armor, like, You have to understand, armor at that time was not a super plentiful thing, and to be the king and have the king's armor, that is like pretty, that's a pretty good deal. That is a good line of defense. Armor would protect against a few arrows, it protects against a few blows. David is going in as a 16 year old with a little sling and a few rocks, no protection. Goliath was a big guy. People argue about his height. Some people say he could have been as tall as nine feet. He had spears, he had javelins, they were heavy. This guy's a war machine. All it took was one spear, David would have been dead. So logically, I'm not liking the odds of David walking into this encounter. It's completely illogical to go without armor, completely illogical to forego all that just for a sling and a stone. Not only just that, but but the armor, although it was good, although it was great, although it was powerful, the more you read this and the more you realize this, you figure that the armor, as good as it was, just didn't work for David. And it's not that it didn't fit. It's that he wasn't tested for. You see, a lot of times we read this narrative and we think that, oh, David didn't wear the armor because it didn't fit him. And that's not true. When I was reading through the commentaries, they were saying that armor at that time could have easily been adjusted. David doesn't say it doesn't fit. He says he had not tested it. What David is saying is that he had not had enough experience with that armor. He wasn't used to it. He didn't know how to move in it. He didn't know how to walk in it. It would not have serviced him in that moment to put that on. And this is interesting because although it seems like the best choice logically, sometimes the best option is not what God wants for you to accomplish the goal he has at hand for you. So even though he could have worn the armor, and it would have been the better choice logistically, it would have been a nightmare, and we wouldn't be reading about David and Goliath right now. We'd be reading about a kid who was pummeled by a giant. One more point, uh, David went in with what he was confident with. You see, David was a shepherd, which means that his whole life, he would have operated tending sheep with a staff, and the sling would have been a common weapon of choice for any shepherd at that time. Now, when we read this story, a lot of times if you're like me, before you, you you do deep research, you take it for what it is, and the story of David with a sling sounds like a story of a kid with a slingshot, and you're trying to figure out how did a slingshot kill a giant, uh, but I did the logical thing, and I watched a 45-minute video on YouTube on biblical slings, and I'm an expert. And what I learned about these slings is that the Weapon of choice for the sling was a sling that you would spin, and the most accurate way to do it was to wind it up like a softball once and done. There's no whipping it around; like you would just and let it go. The ammunition could have been as small as a golf ball, as big as a tennis ball, which is pretty big when you think about it. And to make the point even further, they could be launched as fast as 100 miles per hour. So when we read this and we go, well, David killed him for a little slingshot. Uh, No, David murdered Goliath with a tennis ball at the forehead shot at 100 miles per hour. That is a very quick whip. And so when I read this, I'm sitting here thinking, man, you know what? There's something that I'm missing here. Because the tool that David chose wasn't the logical tool, but it ended up being the perfect tool necessary to defeat Goliath. And the more I read and the more I thought through, there were two things that stuck with me, two things that I believe that we need to understand when we have confidence in God. And the first is this, that God has equipped us with what we need to accomplish His will in our life. That God has equipped us with what we need to accomplish His will in our life. You see, uh, the sling was the perfect choice. When you look at war back then, you understand that a big part of that war was fought in, in hand-to-hand combat very close. When you put a nine foot giant like Goliath in front of a 16 year old like David, even if David has the armor, I hate to break it to you, but the odds aren't too great. All it takes is one swing and he would have been done for. Now the slingshot doesn't seem like a great choice, but what God knew is that David with a sling would have kept enough distance between him and Goliath where he wouldn't have to get within the range of attack. He could throw from a distance safely and still be able to kill the giant. I've been learning in life that sometimes the tools that God gives us doesn't seem like the tools that we want to have, but more often than not, they're the tools that we need to accomplish what he needs us to accomplish. I would have taken the armor, and I would have been dead. But David took the sling, and he killed a giant. You see, I think the issue here is that it wasn't David that put the armor on, it was Saul that put the armor on David. What we see in this moment is that Saul was riding on the confidence in man and David was riding in the confidence in God. When Saul saw the situation, he goes, man, I have to do whatever I can to give him the best chance at winning. Let me give him the best armor we've got. That'll give him a better chance. You know what David said? David said, no, 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 I don't need this. I have God with me. I'm going to go with what I'm comfortable with and he will go before me. You see, confidence in man is terrifying because it gives you a logical advantage, but more often times than not, logic goes out the window when you're dealing with certain issues. In a fight against a giant, the best armor isn't going to help you much. And as I'm reading this and thinking through this, I remembered a podcast I listened to a long time ago, and it spoke about these three brothers called the Whittingham brothers. The Whittingham brothers may or may not be familiar with them. They were very rich adrenaline junkies. They flew airplanes, they did a bunch of dangerous things. And at some point two of the brothers got extremely bored as you do when you're extremely rich and wealthy. And they decided let's get into racing. And so what they did is they approached the Le Mans race and they bought two seats on a racing team to race at Le Mans. You can buy your way into any racing team but it's very expensive. The story says that each one of the brothers paid $20,000 to have an opportunity to drive at the 24 hours of Le Mans. When they get to the first meeting, the owner of the team tells them that they were going to be driving second and third shift and that he was going to put his best driver in the first shift. Naturally, the brothers are not happy with this. They're saying, well, what happens if he crashes and we don't get to drive? The owner says, tough luck. That's racing. Deal with it. So they start to ask, what would it take for us to be able to go first? The owner stops and he thinks for a second and he goes, well, you would have to buy the car. The brothers look and they say, well, how much? The story says that the owner at the time was trying to give a number that was big enough to make them not be able to purchase it then and there. So he threw out the number $200,000. Now, at the time, the car would have been worth $120,000. So this guy's thinking $80,000. There's no way they're going to be able to do this. Where are they going to get that money that quick? The two brothers looked at each other and they said, OK. The owner said, What do you mean? He goes, Do me a favor, grab your assistant, send him to our trailer. Tell him to look under our bed, there's going to be a black suitcase. When he opens a black suitcase, ask him to take out $200,000, not a penny more, to bring it back, we want to buy the car. And sure enough, they purchased the car. It is said that these guys would walk away with between a half a million and a million dollars in a black suitcase at any given day. That's just how they rolled. Now, so these guys now own the car, they're starting the race. But the problem is when they get to the lineup, The 24 Hours of Le Mans is a very serious race. These are the best cars in the world, the best drivers in the world, the best teams in the world. They were driving a factory spec car. This is a vehicle that you could go purchase off the lot if you have enough money. Back then, you could even drive them on the roads. So these guys bought a car that you could drive on the roads, still had normal equipment like air conditioning and power windows, but they were racing against cars that were built to win. They were lighter. They were faster. They did not cost hundreds of thousands. They cost millions of dollars. Time and development was put into these vehicles. The best drivers were piloting these vehicles. So when they get onto the starting line, it becomes very quickly evident that they were at a disadvantage. They were the slowest car. They were the least expensive car with the least experienced drivers. And yet, if you Google 1979 Le Mans, you'll go to find out that the Whittingham brothers won first place in that race. And it was the first time in 20 years that a production car beat out all the prototype vehicles on the lot. Naturally, this got me curious. What happened over the course of 24 hours that caused two brothers who had never raced before in the slowest vehicle to beat out the fastest teams in the best cars with the most money? And it turns out that at the 1979 Le Mans race, Rain for 24 hours and would you believe that all the prototype cars as fast as they were as expensive as they were as much time and development was put into winning the race they forgot to add windshield wipers for the sake of aerodynamics <laughs> and so the Whittingham brothers in the slowest car with the least experience at the biggest disadvantage were the only car in the race with windshield wipers so the fastest cars couldn't go at full capacity. Meanwhile, the slowest car is overtaking everyone because while everyone was struggling to go through the rain, these guys were just gliding on through like it was no big deal. And I'm reading this and I'm realizing how many times in our life have we stood at the starting line looking at all these other situations being, man, we are at a disadvantage here, not realizing that the moment the rain starts to come down, we have the windshield wipers we need to win the race. Man, David in this situation, he was looking at a disadvantage. The giant was bigger. He was stronger. He was a killing machine. David was 16 with no armor with the sling. But you know what happened? The moment when it came down to it, David had what he needed to accomplish the goal at hand. It's not about what we have. It's about what God has given us. Yo, know, and many of us, I think, we're in situations where we've been convincing ourselves that if we only had more, we'd be better off. If only I had more finances, if only my ministry was a little bit bigger, if only I had more followers on Instagram. And I'm here to tell you that if you had those things, you may not be able to accomplish what it is that God wants you to accomplish. For a lot of us, if I'm being honest, that armor seemed real appealing, but it wouldn't have been successful at killing Goliath. And and for a lot of us here, if we got what we thought we needed, we wouldn't make it. Man, I remember thinking, man, how much more successful would our young adult ministry be if we saw 100 consistent young adults every time we had a service? And I felt the Lord tell me, man, you can't even care for 50 young adults. Why would I give you 100? You know what 100 young adults would do? It would crumple us because we wouldn't know how to care for that many. I know that there's people in here go, man, if the Lord would just drop $20,000 into my lap, I could fix all my issues. You know what the truth is? When you watch and and you read about these stories of people coming into money, it almost always ends with them having less money than they started with. Oh yeah, I'll take care of my debt. Oh yeah, I'll pay off these bills. Sure you will. But I'm sure there's also a bunch of other things you'd like to have. And before you know it, that money didn't fix your problems. It just put you at a bigger disadvantage. Now this is not to say that if someone felt the urge to write me a $20,000 check, I wouldn't accept it. I'm just saying that most of us, squander. okay God has equipped us with what we need to succeed in what he has for us in this life but there's a moment here where I'm reading this uh, and it hit me that it's not just about the fact that God has equipped us but it's we need to be faithful with what he's given us you see we can ask for God to equip us with more but if we're not faithful with what we already have we're not going to succeed the moment more stuff is put on our plate You see, David couldn't wear the armor because he didn't have the experience in it. He hadn't tested it. He hadn't put the time in. But David was very familiar with a sling and a few rocks. What we don't realize in reading this is that David would have had so much experience with the sling up until this point that when he went to fight Goliath, he would have been a very accurate slingsman. We read the story of David fighting Goliath and we only see this one battle. But what we don't realize is before David was at the battle, for many years he was tending the sheep. And for many years, he was protecting the sheep. And for many years, he was training with that sling. So the moment that God placed him in front of the giant, it was just another day for David. One day, David is protecting the sheep from from lions and from bears. The next day, David's protecting Israel from a giant. But why is it? Because he had the experience and he put the time in with what he had. You see, a lot of us wish, and myself included, that we'd have more things, that we'd have nicer things. But even if we were given those things, our lack of experience in those things wouldn't really do anything. They wouldn't advance our situation. They wouldn't carry us any further. I remember one of the weirdest compliments I received about our church was someone who came up to me and said, man, your church is cool because they don't have cool things. And I was like, I don't know how I'm supposed to take that. And he said, no, no, no. What I mean is you guys don't have cool equipment yet and you don't have the nice screens and some things aren't perfect and you guys are still figuring things out. And I'm like, bro, you're not making this case any better. This is not how you compliment. And he goes, no, 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 man, what, what, what I mean is that you guys, you guys are doing what God asked you to do with what you have. And it's evident when you walk into this church, the presence of God is here, and it's not because you have the best things, it's not because you've been uh, given the, the best equipment, it's because you just have a congregation of people who are hungry, pursuing after the Lord, and you guys are just stewarding well what you have. And I was like, thank you so much. Because when we got here years ago, uh, Me and Diana were at another church, and when we got here, we were shell-shocked to walk into a place with 20 people. And we had come from the lights, we'd come from the spectacle, and we got here, and I was like, there's 20 of us. And half of us are on the worship team. So there's 10 of us until the sermon starts. And I'd wanted all that stuff for so long. Like, I joked about it for so many years, I really thought that a fog machine was essential to church. Like, how are people going to feel the presence of God if there's not fog at their feet? You know what I mean? It's just how it works. Man, but I'm proud of the church that we've become that we don't have those things. And you know what? Maybe one day we'll get those things, but God has taught us to steward well what we have. And now when people walk into this place, they're experiencing God. Why? Because we've been consistent and faithful with what he's given us. And he could have given us more, but he didn't. Instead, he gave us what we have. And what we have is enough for what, what he's asked us to do. And we don't need more right now. Maybe one day we will. But at this moment, I think we're doing what God has asked us to do with what he's given us. And and man, when I read uh, and I think and, and, and I process, the more we're just faithful with what he's given us, the more we're consistent in putting in the time and practice, the easier the opportunities open up. What I love about David is that David makes his way into the kingdom without having to force his way in, without having to negotiate his way in. The Bible says that when Samuel shows up to anoint one of Jesse's sons, he completely ignores David. David's not even in the room. When David finally walks in, that's the moment Samuel goes, this is the one that God wants to anoint. What does David do? David immediately goes back to work the fields. And we read about how his brothers go to war and David is still working the fields. And eventually his dad asks him to go deliver food, so David does. And when he gets there, he slays the giant, bless you. And and, and then once he slays the giant, Saul is so impressed with the fact that this kid slayed the giant that he brings him into the kingdom. And now David spends the rest of his time in the kingdom. And I'm sitting here thinking, who would have thought that all the time and energy and resources and practices he put in defending those sheep would have paid off enough to get him to a point where he would fight the giant and that victory would get him into the kingdom with Saul. Man, the prophecy was being fulfilled of him being king, not because he was forcing it, but because he was being faithful for what God asked him to do. And little by little, opportunities arise, doors opened, and David was in the kingdom. We realize that David only made it to the kingdom because he was faithful in the field with the sheep. And the only reason he was successful in the battleground was because of that as well. David did what he had to do. He trusted that God gave him what he needed. He, he stewarded well his time and his energy and his resources into that sling. He had confidence in who God was. He did what God asked him to do. And eventually David would go on to become king over Israel. But the, the problem with, with, with this and the problem with this confidence is that the more that we preach this and the more that we teach the younger generation about this, the harder it gets for us current leaders to lead. I need you to understand what I'm going to say here. When we teach the generation after us to steward well, what God has given them, when we teach the generation after us to, to practice and be be faithful with what God has given them, they will become better leaders faster. You know what the problem is that a lot of times as a church, we we preach about wanting to build up the next generation and we want them to do more and be better. But then suddenly that next generation starts to actually become better and then the current leaders start to get a little bit jealous and we start to compare and we start to get anxious. I mean, I've seen it time and time again where we, we equip the younger people and then the younger people get better and now we don't know what to do. You see, Saul, before he, 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 he became king, he was just this regular guy. God chooses him to take uh, charge over Israel, to lead God's people. That's what they wanted. He puts Saul in place. Saul does well. He's successful in war. He wins battles, but then Saul starts making decisions that weren't his to make. Saul makes a few calls that weren't good. God said he's gonna remove the kingdom from Saul. He then goes and, and puts it on David. David begins to grow in his leadership. And in Samuel chapter 18, we have a moment where it begins to fall apart for Saul. Uh, Samuel chapter 18, verses 5 to 16, if you can put it up on the screen. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over all the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang one to another as they celebrated. Saul has struck his thousands, David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spear from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from the presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before people. And David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came before them. You know what the problem is? David starts doing well. You know why David does well? Because David keeps being faithful in what God asks him to do. And so it's crazy. That the Bible says that everywhere where David went, he was victorious in war. And he starts incurring victory after victory after victory. And the word gets to Saul that people are celebrating David's victories. They go, Saul killed 1,000, but David killed 10,000. And suddenly this little boy that Saul himself brought into the kingdom is getting so good that it is threatening Saul's kingship, and Saul doesn't know what to do. So Saul starts to get nervous, and Saul starts to get stressed, and Saul starts tries to kill David. David evades. The Bible says that Saul moves him somewhere else. You know what happens? David keeps being successful. Why? Because the Lord was with him. You know what the hard thing about leadership is? When we teach people to be confident, they will be better than us, and they will go farther than us. And we may slay a 1,000, but they'll slay 10,000. And now the ball's on our court to decide, do we respond like Saul did or do we respond in a new way? You know what I feel like would have been different? Saul missed the point entirely. Saul did kill a 1,000. David killed 10,000. But any kill that David made would have been tallied up under Saul's kingship anyways. Man, Saul could have realized that together they slayed 11,000. Saul could have chosen that moment to champion David forward. Man, and it's hard because this all started the moment that Saul stopped building God's kingdom and started building his own kingdom. And the problem is when it comes to ministry, a lot of us have began building God's kingdom, but one day it goes from God's kingdom to my kingdom. And then comes along someone who's genuinely interested in building God's kingdom, and we can't stand the fact that they're doing more than we are. And the problem isn't that they're doing anything wrong. It's the fact that we can only build one kingdom at a time. And for many of us, we're building our kingdom as opposed to God's. And what God's gonna do is he's gonna keep using people who are about his business. And so if we're leaders who think that it's about my ministry and my following and what people think about me, I hate to break it to you, but God's gonna use someone else. And he's gonna build someone else. And you're either gonna get out of the way are you going to live tormented like Saul was? Why? Because every victory that David got should have been a celebration because it had advanced God's kingdom, but instead every single victory tormented Saul more and more. This is toxic leadership. You know, and the problem is that for many of us, we, we want to genuinely champion people forward, but, but it's hard the moment the next generation gets a little bit better than you. I know like when when I walk into youth group, if you go in on any given uh, Friday night, there are so many young uh, up and coming preachers and teachers that it's overwhelming. We had one night where we had some of the youth preach for a little bit and share their testimonies. And there are kids giving adequate narratives about how God changed their life. And they're like 13 years old. Like I wasn't doing that at 13, right? I preached my first sermon at 19. And so I see a kid preach at 13, and internally I'm like, this is awesome, but can can, can I be real? There was a moment in me that was like, man, I wonder how good this kid's going to be when he's my age. I wonder how much better he's going to be when he's my age. I wonder how many more people he will reach when he's my age. And I realized that I was more invested in what people were thinking about me than I was celebrating the fact that this kid just preached a fire word and that everyone in that room received it. Why? Because I was trying to build my kingdom. And we're getting to a point even in in ministry, right, where me and Diana, we get older. And the older we get, the more we go into the higher part of young adult ministry. And there's the eventual conversation of we're going to have to let go of this and give to someone else. And a part of me genuinely wants to believe that I'm the type of person that will champion the next leader. But there's a part of me that worries that the next leader is just going to do better. There's a part of me that worries that they're just going to do better events and preach better sermons and be more organized and be more successful. And these are the moments where I feel God look at me and touch me and say, Hey, you need to step it up because it's not about you. And it's never been about you. And instead of making it about you versus them, it should only be about God's kingdom. Would you do me a favor? Would you champion the next generation? Would you not compare yourself? Would you take the moments you have? Would you lift them up? Would you let them stand on your shoulder? Would you raise them higher? And you know what, if they preach and reach more people than you have, glory to God. And I'll be real, like a common thread in this church that I love is that there's so many of us that grew up in churches that were really successful until the pastor made a few bad calls. And I had conversations even this week talking to people from from old churches we've gone to and being like, man, we visited it, and it's, it's not like how it was. You know, everyone left. Everyone's gone. It's not growing. The Spirit's not there, and you start to wonder why, and you realize it wasn't that God stopped showing up. It's just that the priority was no longer to build God's kingdom at that church. And the moment they started to build that pastor's kingdom, it just fell apart. What I love about Living Word is that uh, Pastor Nick has made it clear many times in private and even in public that this isn't his church. This is what he's been entrusted to steward for the time being. And one day this church will go to someone else. But well, you know what job Nick's doing right now that he's succeeding at? He's building enough people to steward this farther than his legacy will go on. We're at a church right now that every ministry is prepping the next generation to take over and to go farther. And as I say here and as I read this and as I think through what our obligation is as a church, I wonder if Living Word Church will be the church that champions future leaders. I wonder if we'll be the church that when we look at what we've accomplished, they won't look at all the the people that were saved here. They, They won't look at how many buildings we built. They won't look at how amazing our events were, but they'll say, man, that church pumped out leaders like no one's business. And those leaders created leaders. And those leaders created leaders. And we'll build a church that leaves a legacy of equipping people to go connect, grow and disciple with that next generation. That is the legacy that we're gonna leave as Living Word Church. And as the worship team makes their way up, I'm sweating because I'm wearing a jacket, but I also have the chills because I have a cold, so I'm struggling up here. So I apologize for this. But I want to say that if there's anything that I'm grateful for in this church, it's that from day one here, from the moment me and Diana walked into these doors, the moment we walked into these doors with 20 people, there were people in this church that were rooting for the future of this church. There were people in this church who were praying for us and pushing us and championing us to go further and go farther. I'm grateful uh, for people like Pastor Eddie and Elsa, like Pastor Paul and Nina, who have been here before we arrived and they're still here today. And all they've done over these last few years is made sure that we were prepared to go farther than they were able to go. And I wonder, as we continue to grow, when I look out into this congregation of all the people here, how much more are we going to prepare those that come after us to go further and farther? Because at the end of it all, it's not about my kingdom, not about Nick's kingdom, not about our kingdom, but it's about God's kingdom. And the more we accomplish by putting our egos and self aside, the more we let God move and flow, the more we teach people to walk confidently in how God's equipped them, the greater God's reach is going to be. And if that means we have to step out of the way and we have to hand the microphone over to someone who's a little bit younger who's been chasing god differently who's a little bit more successful you know what however we win more souls over to the kingdom let's do that i would love to be the guy on the basketball team who takes that last winning shot but at the end of the day a win is a win and if i have to give it over to you for you to win the game for us Guess what, I'm still going home with a championship ring on my finger. So I don't wanna make this about individual people, but I wanna say, hey, collectively as a church and as the church, let's champion people forward. Let's let them stand on our shoulders. Let's push them up higher. And let's let people like David be victorious because we are not gonna act the same way Saul did, amen? Let's all just rise as we pray. oh, the sniffles are kicking. Lord is so good. I asked him to to sustain me with a sniffle until the end of service. And now it's all there. I'm sweating this flu away. It's going. You know, when we have these altar time moments, it's interesting because I feel like oftentimes we don't understand exactly what's happening up here. This isn't a place where we judge people who need prayer. This is a place where we come together and stand in unison, believing that God's gonna do something. One of the greatest honors we have is when we get to pray with people, I love when months down the road, someone comes up to me and goes, do you remember when we prayed together about this and we asked God to be faithful here? Well, guess what? He's been faithful. And when we have moments like this, where we say, hey, the altars are open, we wanna pray with you. What we're doing is, hey, let's join together and let's ask God to step into our circumstances and situations. So if you're here today and you're a leader, and you struggle with the idea of having to let go and let the next generation lead, I'd love to pray with you today. If you're someone who's sitting here today and you feel like David, you feel like you don't have the right tools when you're looking at the giant before you, I want to assure you, you have what you need, but I pray that God shows you this week that he's given you what you need to succeed. And if there's anything else that you need prayer for, man, We just want to join with you this morning and declare that God is good. God knows what he's doing and we trust him to win our victories, amen? So I'm going to pray for those of us who are going to be praying, if you can make your way forward, let's just close out the service and enjoy this beautiful Sunday. God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you're so faithful in the really big things and in the small things, God. Honestly, Lord, did not think I would make it to this point and I'm so thankful that even that is, is such a small prayer, but it's so powerful how good you are, Lord. God, I pray, Lord, for any person who's in here today who who knows what it's like to be scared, Lord. I I pray that you show them that we're not fearful about who comes after us, Lord. It's our job to just give them the best running start to succeed, God. I pray for any person in here, God, who's looking at a situation ahead of them and is worried and is unsure whether or not they have what they need, God. I pray that you show them that you've equipped them long before they were aware of what was gonna happen, God. I pray that we trust and believe just like David did, that he wasn't confident in his ability, Lord, but he was confident that you were the God that went before him, that you were the God that slayed those bears and lions on his behalf, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we trust you for all the things that you've done and you're doing. In Jesus' mighty name, everyone said, amen. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's message here at Living Word Church. Uh, If you're looking for a community, looking for a home church, we want to challenge you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1045 here in Union, New Jersey. We pray you have a blessed day in Jesus' name.